Ja, ja verujem u vašu energiju, ja verujem u vaš rad, u vaš trud. Ja verujem u Srbiju, ja verujem u svakog srpskog čovjeka i znam da možemo da budemo bolji od drugih. Pokazali smo to prethodne tri godine i to možemo i moramo nastaviti. Welcome to Alpha Bunga Bunga, the global politics podcast at the end of the end of history. We're recording this on Thursday, the 25th of June. My name is Alex Hokule. I'm in Sao Paulo, Brazil. Alpha Bunga Bunga is also George Hoare and Philip Cunliffe in the UK. And this episode has been produced by Philip Cunliffe. Today, we're talking about the Western Balkans, and we'll find out where that is in a moment. This is a little geography lesson. Uh, more specifically, we're talking about the very recent Serbian elections. Uh, quite controversial. Yep. And very excited to be talking to um, Lily Lynch. Uh, so Lily's an American who's been living in, um, in Serbia f- and uh, the region for a while now. And um, she's a major international commentator on the politics of Serbia and the politics of the region more generally. So very, I'm very interested to hear what she has to say, particularly in the wake of um, the very uh, specific characteristics of Serbian politics, which nonetheless, I think, provide plenty of insight into wider political dynamics throughout the world, refracted into a very kind of um, particular Balkan prism. Yeah, uh, George, um, you, you've you've uh, never been to the Balkans. Um, you told us you haven't you, you haven't been to Slovakia either, which was just um, a little bit of extra information. No, just, <laughs> yeah, just a, just testimony to um, uh, the kind of geographically limited knowledge. This is typical, though, with you Brexiters, George, with your your parochialism and your lack of attention, your fascist, soggy, grey island mentality, where you don't look beyond the borders of your own country and you just think it's all the same. I'm just working my way through Europe, west to uh, west to east. So yeah, I I'm, I I haven't yeah been other than to Russia, and uh, Estonia and Latvia. Let let let's the let's the listener think we're um yeah we're complete ingenues in this uh, in this regard. Phil, you have uh, lots of Balkan connections, don't you? So you you have some credibility to speak um, on what's going on in southeastern Europe. Yeah, well, um, I have family there. My mum's Serbian, and um, I. Sp- have spent a lot of time there both um both as a child and uh, less so i guess as an adult um and i write regularly about western balkan politics wherever the hell the western balkans are so yeah i mean i've uh, i've got some um i have some insights i suppose and uh also i obviously it would be remiss of me to not to say that the experience of the disintegration of Yugoslavia um, and its descent into civil war over the course of the 1990s was obviously very profoundly impactful for me and my shaping my political outlook. So um, I'm very I'm very curious to see what Lily has to say about the most recent um, shenanigans in Serbian politics. So just to check that the Serbians are the bad guys, right? Um, so you're both a pro-Serb and pro british brexiter guy just to just to paint a picture of quite how evil you are yeah thank you yes is, they'll be even more global. fodder and fodder now for after having been a nazbol a strasserite a brexit fascist um i can now be a serbian um genocidaire maybe there you go Excellent. twitter thank you yeah. right there well it's a, it's a global politics podcast but it's not necessarily the 
the goodies of, of global politics. Maybe we're just uh, assembling all the all the baddies. So, yeah. Thanks, George. Oh, <laughs> you know, I guess I'm I'm also included in that. <laughs> all right, um, that's enough from us. We should get Lily on the line. Let's call her up. So today we're talking to the editor of Balkanist magazine, Lily Lynch, about the recent general election in Serbia and politics in the Western Balkans more generally. Thanks for joining us and welcome to the show, Lily. Thank you so much for having me. So before we get into the detail, I just want to establish for our listeners where the Western Balkans um, are, because it's something that seems to me it's an abiding source of geographic, political, uh, geopolitical, historical, mythical, cultural confusion. Because, you know, if we say West Balkans, it suggests the western end of the Balkan Peninsula in Europe. Um, yet no one speaks about the east end of the Balkan Peninsula, which would presumably be Romania and Bulgaria. I guess Western is generally associated with better things than Eastern. On the other hand, Romania and Bulgaria are both members of the European Union. Nobody talks about the South Balkans, which I guess would be Greece and maybe Turkey. The origin of the word Balkan is, um, which means forested mountain. It's a Turkish word, in fact. Um, so, um, a country, and Turkey obviously then shades into the Middle East. Uh, so, it's I just, you know, where are the Western Balkans? Can you help us out, Lily? Where are they? Well, the Western Balkans, that kind of designation is, is an European Union designation. And that kind of describes the, the countries of. Uh, for the most part of the former Yugoslavia, um, uh, the, the successor states, the former Yugoslavia. So I suppose that's what we'll be talking about the most part today. Um, uh, so, yeah, um, I, I think today we're going to be talking mostly about Serbia, uh, Kosovo, um, maybe a little bit of Montenegro, perhaps Macedonia. Um, but, yeah, so this, this I... I, I think that you've said before that you don't like this destination, Western Balkans, and I was curious as to why you don't like it. Yeah, I suppose because it seems to me it's an attempt to kind of um, detoxify the idea of being Balkan. So you add okay. West to it to make it, because West is best, right? So you add West to it to make it sound better. Um, but like I say, then it becomes this weird kind of new cultural construct because there's no East Balkans. Nobody ever says the East Balkans or the South Balkans or the, I mean, or the North Balkans. I mean, where's the North Balkans? Is that Austria? Is that like Bavaria? I mean, Vienna. You know? yeah. yeah, exactly. Vienna, right? So it's always, you know, all these attempts to kind of reclassify the Balkans in ways that make it more palatable always end up reproducing all of these kinds of conceptual absurdities that go along with it. You know what I mean? Right, right, right. Yeah, I, I see what you mean. And I, I always was kind of averse to it because I thought it was something that was conceptualized by the by the European Union um, to, to describe a cluster of countries that would be one day in the EU. Um, so yeah, so that's 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 kind of my my impression when you say Western Balkans. It's the countries that are not in the EU yet, um, but are candidate countries. Um, I, I wouldn't even include Croatia or Slovenia. They're already in the EU. So yeah. I would say that's uh, Yugoslavia plus Albania um, uh, minus Croatia and Slovenia are the Western Balkans. Yeah, absolutely. And um, like you say, I mean, it's very much, it was very much a kind of a calculated construct by the European Union to kind of capture this clutch of small um states that were left over from previous waves of expansion 
um, mm. surrounded more or less on all sides by European Union member states, and that for all sorts of reasons were seen as sources of kind of instability of various kinds. Um, and so, but it's that thing, nobody wants to be in the Balkans. You know, if that's the West Balkans, where are the proper Balkans, you know? <laughs> exactly, yes. And, and you see this word Balkan still has um, really a negative charge. I, I've used the word Balkanization a few times here in the region. I don't know if you've ever come across this, but people become very... Um, kind of offended because they see it as a pejorative, you know, like any, that if you apply the word Balkanization to something that doesn't have anything to do with the region, the Balkans, they become, you know, it, it's, it's, it's offensive. So uh, and I can understand why. You should maybe, maybe down. try out Belgianization, you know, just as a kind of softer alternative or something. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That works. So Balkan is in the title of um, the magazine um, that you edit. And could you maybe tell us a little bit about how you ended up editing Balkanist? And indeed, how did you end up in Belgrade to begin with? Mm. Uh, well, the uh, I ended up in Belgrade. It preceded the magazine. Uh, I was here and I kind of... Um, I was curious about the region before I started grad school in London, came here and um, met a guy and... Uh, moved here and we founded co-founded Balkanist together we started it and I was the have been the editor-in-chief from the beginning um and uh and yeah we just felt that there was at the time it would have been 2013 um that there was a space that wasn't being filled like for a certain kind of writing about the region um we felt that the region was kind of um, written about in a very dry and uninteresting and unengaging kind of way, and that um, there it, it was always like a very um, morose, always backwards-looking kind of, um, and we wanted to kind of inject something a little bit fresher into into it, into what was out there, and just I just wanted to experiment. I just wanted to write and have fun, really, with what I was you know living as living here, and. Um, and so, yeah, so we kind of started it. We also really did not like the way other media had portrayed the Balkans for since, you know, for at least a couple of decades, since the 90s. And we wanted to kind of poke holes in that and make fun of it. And so that was sort of the original idea. And then, of course, you know, all your creations become like Frankenstein and like the choir of their own. And that's sort of what happened. Uh, so yeah, so, so that, that's kind of the origin story of, uh, Balkanist and that's how I ended up in Belgrade and I've lived in other capitals in the region. I lived in Zagreb, I lived in Sarajevo, I lived in Tirana, um, I lived in Ukraine and Odessa, um, lived in Budapest. So I've, I've, I've been, been all around, lived in Skopje for some time. So, um, I've, I have a pretty decent grasp on kind of what's going on in the, to, to varying degrees in, in different countries, but Serbia is certainly the kind of like home base I have in the region. Okay. And just before we talk a bit more about Serbia, could you maybe um, characterize that problematic coverage that you were seeking to challenge when you established the magazine? Ooh. <laughs> um, I, know, I know it's a big ask, but just to give, <laughs> just to give our listeners um, something of the flavor of what you felt you were up against. Mm. Uh, I suppose that the, there's um, there's the, the, the kind of there's on the one hand it's there's the this whole kind of um, 
Balkanist Orientalist discourse that um, Maria Todorova has written about in her famous book um, uh, about the Balkans, uh, you know, portraying the the region as this um, kind of like Orientalist fantasy, you know, that I, it where it um, you can imagine like you know gentlemen explorers from the 19th century going around the Ottoman Empire and lounging in harems and like smoking opium and um, they kind of see the, this region, they've always kind of seen this region as exotic, but dangerous. Um, that that exists. But then also I think that more of what we were pushing back against was something more recent and that was just the um, the kind of exclusive 90s uh, portrayal of the region, the only kind of um, interest people seem to have in the region is as a warning and as a uh, as a source of kind of misery, and um, and we wanted to tell different kinds of stories about it. And of course, you know, we ended up getting into the misery. You can't you can't ignore that. It's real. It happened. Yeah. Um, but uh, we, we certainly felt that also. Um, we felt that there were the same stories being told over and again, over and over again, and that's something that still happens. Uh, and we felt, especially coming from Belgrade, um, that we had kind of different perspective, but that, that we still wanted to include people from across the region, but uh, that there were other stories that hadn't been um, given as much attention and other kinds of voices you know, whether it be young journalists or young people who'd never been published before, you know, who had something to say, who normally wouldn't have a platform or, you know, um, you know, people who normally wouldn't um, um, say the, the academics who wouldn't publish more kind of like journalistic or analysis, of, of, like in a shorter form. So we kind of wanted to um, bring together, you know, people who wouldn't ordinarily be writing for like a magazine and, um, and bring, uh, bring in perspectives that you wouldn't necessarily hear everywhere else. Um, I don't know if we were always successful in that, but that was certainly the, the we, we had hoped to do that in the, in the beginning. Yep. Uh, so um, on the question of Serbia specifically at mm. the core of the Western Balkans, and um, the capital, Belgrade, obviously capital of the old Yugoslav state, um, they just had a general election. Um, and since you've, as you indicated, since the end of the wars of Yugoslav secession, Serbia uh, doesn't make the international news so much. The recent exception to this was when the um, Serbian president, Aleksandar Vucic, whose progressive party just won the election, a few months back, um, at the start of the corona pandemic, he declared that European solidarity was a myth. And that the only way Serbia could withstand the corona pandemic was by relying on their friend and brother, in Vucic's word, which we, and by whom he meant the um, Chinese premier, Xi Jinping. And so this statement was taken as an indication of the growing, um, this was taken as an indication of the growing shift in power to the East in global politics. So, and this, and you know, this was one way in which Serbia became, was prominent in the news, um, could you tell us a little bit about what you think is interesting about Serbian politics and merits wider attention? I think Serbia has one of the most interesting foreign policy uh, programs in the world, of any country in the world, and certainly in Europe. Um, I, 
the, the this kind of non-aligned policy that is has been inherited in a way that it's inherited from Yugoslavia, from socialist Yugoslavia. Um, Belgrade, of course, was the capital of the non-aligned movement, but still that's a foreign policy that Belgrade um, pursues to this day. And that was evident in that speech that Vucic gave where he was praising um, uh, Brat G, Brother G, as <laughs> as he's known here. Um, so, uh, so Serbia is certainly, uh, I don't know if it's always been exclu- exclusively um, the talent of the, say, the foreign ministry, but the uh, it sometimes has Serbia has gotten kind of lucky in the last couple of years with the kind of ge- with geopolitics shifting and the world shifting, um, but it has kind of successfully um, managed to um, to strengthen ties with major powers um, from China, Russia, Turkey. Um, um, it still is an EU uh, candidate. Um, Washington, I think you could probably say with certainty, and we'll talk about this later, that Serbia's relationship with Washington is stronger now than it's been at any other time since yeah. uh you know, since, I don't know, when, when um, certainly since uh, Milosevic, sorry, since the, since uh, Tito, probably. Yeah. Um, um, so really, Serbia's foreign policy is, is fascinating. I mean, you can, you can watch the news and see in the morning, you know, uh, Vucic meeting with uh, officials from the the EU, and then in the afternoon he's praising um, socialism with Chinese characteristics on Chinese television. So it's really kind of uh, a fascinating um, um, place to be. You kind of feel like you're at the center of the universe in some ways, you know. And of course, and I don't, also don't want to discredit this, um, the foreign ministry, especially, has embarked on this effort to. Um, to strengthen ties with what we would call the so-called third world, and uh, which Tito obviously cultivated strong ties with countries in um, in Africa and Asia, and then those uh, those ties remain strong today. Um, and many of those countries do not recognize Kosovo's independence. Um, that's the we'll talk more about Kosovo later, I guess. But um, that's uh, uh, Serbia's former province. Um, that Serbia does not recognize as independent. So um, Serbia really has a, a fascinating kind of foreign policy. It's it's also um, tends to be kind of an interesting um, bellwether in some ways, I think, um, yeah. for the world. I mean, there's a famous quote that Julian Assange said, of all people, but I think he said it in 2013, that the future comes to Serbia first. Oh, um, I didn't know that. Wow. Yeah, yeah, it's a good quote. Um, so, I mean, I think that's one of the, one of the kind of more astute things that he said, had to say, um, but, um, and, and it does feel that way sometimes. I mean, it certainly felt that way with this, um, uh, uh, with, with what's going on, but watching what's happening in America and the kind of like, uh, uh, right now I'm watching from Belgrade, um, there is this kind of sense of, uh, I think almost schadenfreude here among people who are saying like look we've we've seen this before you know um 
That, that's yeah. really that's really funny. I, I mean, we uh, sorry, Lily. This is Alex here. Um, I mean, oh, we yeah. on this podcast obviously like to talk about Italy being the country of the future. You know that the future comes to mm-hmm. Italy first, and in some ways, it's sort of the premise of this uh, of this podcast. Certainly, our logo, anyway. Um, so it's actually interesting to hear that you know Serbia might uh, <laughs> might trump us on that. Um, I actually wanted to ask a different question. If, if this isn't too big a one, but excuse my ignorance, I'm, I'm actually fascinated to learn, as you've just said, that there's a certain continuity between Yugoslav foreign policy, and specifically um, its kind of central role in the non-aligned movement, and its and, and, a, and a continuity to today um, in terms yeah. of its ability and, and perhaps kind of institutionalized skill in playing off uh, other great powers against one another. Could you maybe tell us a little bit about that historical development? Because I, I, I find that fascinating and how that institutional continuity has been maintained despite a complete rupture between Yugoslavia and then Serbia. I would say that um, this, um, this government, that's, or these, these parties that have been in power since 2012, um, the Serbian Progressive Party, and then in cooperate in coalition with the Ser- Serbian, sorry, the Socialist Party of Serbia, that was Milosevic's party, but it was uh, the Socialist Party, is kind of the watered down League of Communists of Yugoslavia. So it it's the kind of the ideological inheritor of like of socialist Yugoslavia, you could say, um, of um, of the party. Um, and I would say under this government, that's one thing that that they deserve some um, degree of praise for. Uh, that um, they've kind of resurrected this Tito style non aligned foreign policy. I think uh, they've really, um, Foreign Minister Ivica Dacic, you know, he is um, even kind of in his style of diplomacy. Um, he is, he kind of mimics Tito in a way. He, he throws these lavish parties, he sings songs, he learns, so he, <laughs> sorry, this is just, I, I'm kind of just like observing his style. I've, I've, I've seen him sing songs for for um, people in different languages. So he'll learn, you know, if he's singing to the French, to uh-huh. to Macron, he'll, he'll learn like a uh, French, uh, French song and he'll sing the French song or, uh, and, and so he, every diplomat or, or head of state that comes, he, he learns a, a song and sings and throws huge parties with, with the cigars and drinks and like, so it's this very Tito style kind of, um, kind of like um, enjoying uh, life socialist kind of cigar socialism style um, that's just that's the stylistic part um, I think that part of the uh, the other side of it is that um, uh, it's just in co- it's in Serbia's best interest to I think they realize that there's a global that as we all have that the time you know, the world is changing that China is, you know, ascendant, and they have gotten on board with that, um, but without burning bridges with mm. Washington, with, while playing Washington quite well, I think. Mm. So, um, and um, yeah, just oh, oh sorry, to, just to cut you off there a little bit, just to yeah. to maybe broaden it out a little bit. Can you? And you might have been going on to say this anyway, but could you tell us a little bit more about Vucic's um, pivot to China? How significant is? geopolitical rivalry in in the the Balkans west or otherwise um I mean that's a good question I think that we're all still kind of waiting to see uh of course after that speech that he gave um, on March 16th 
when he declared the state of emergency um, for the coronavirus. And he said that, you know, European solidarity is a fairy tale and said that China, you know, our Chinese brothers are, are kind of our only hope. Um, that the EU react, you know, the, the reaction from the Brussels was very knee-jerk negative and, and, and uh, they were saying, you know, masks off, this is the real Serbia. Um, what I think people need to know is that, you know, it, on the one hand, yes, people are very thankful towards China and Serbia for the, the for the assistance given during the coronavirus epidemic, but that was also Vucic was also campaigning then. So we had there was a, an election coming up. So part of that speech, you know, that that kind of anti-Western um, uh, sentiment plays very well to to his base and his base is most of the country, like, or to, to, to Serbs in general, but anti-Western sentiment kind of plays very well. Uh, so I think that it has to also be understood within the context of the elections. So I don't necessarily think that, uh, okay, on the one hand, uh, China is very present here and that that's very real. I mean, there are, um, just within the last, I think, few weeks, uh, Huawei, the cameras, facial recognition cameras have been installed all over Belgrade. They're everywhere. There's a, wow. a wow. map that tracks. Um, and um, I've I taken photos of, of several of them. They're, they're, you can see them on almost every corner. Uh, so that is, that is very real. I mean, they're, that um, China and Serbia are cooperating in that way. Um, I don't, but uh, that does not necessarily mean that um, China is going. Uh, sorry, Serbia is going to be like joining like the Eurasian Union, and it, it's, it's like it is not no longer going to be just talking with DC or with with Brussels. I mean, Serbia has been very clear about, you know, even though Vujic said that uh, that European solidarity is a fairy tale, you know, that within a few days he was meeting with like the EU delegation and, and, and continues to do so. So um, he, he, part of that speech, which I thought was actually, you know, good for Europeans to hear because they were lagging in their assistance to Serbia. Um, part of that was, um, you know, a, a kind of a pop populist campaigning uh, for the election. Mm. I don't Yeah. No, I think it's really, yeah. Really interesting stuff, yeah. You're making me nostalgic. Um, uh, <laughs> talking about cigar socialism now. Um, I was supposed to go a few weeks back, in fact, um, uh, to Serbia, but obviously it was cut off by the corona corona pandemic. Yeah. Um, but cigar socialism—that's a great phrase. I'm going to remember that one. Um, <laughs> I wrote an article about it for Balkanista when uh, when uh, Castro died. Oh, about Tito and, and, and Castro's cigar socialism and um, that anyway, but yeah. <laughs> we'll add that yeah. we'll add that one to the show notes for sure. <laughs> okay. So you mentioned Vucic and his um his ability to kind of um maintain this foreign policy of non alignment. And he is one of the most interesting political leaders today, I think, in many ways. Um, and it's a shame, in a sense, that Serbia is a small country so that he perhaps doesn't get the attention that he would otherwise get, because I think he's a fa he's a fascinating and sinister figure in so many ways. 
Um, so he begins as this kind of vicious and violent ultranationalist during the wars of the 1990s. And now he's a technocratic centrist who's showered with praise by EU leaders. And in the run up to the vote um, uh, on Sunday, he was before then, he was praised by Donald Tusk in a socially distanced kind of video call um, where he was, you know, talked about as to all the changes and transformations, how he's brought Serbia closer to the European Union. And then he also won the attentions of the world press when he appointed um, uh, lesbian Anna Brnabic as the country's first female prime minister. So how do you read this incredibly, um, uh, this incredibly, this political chameleon? I mean, first of all, I just want to say that I totally agree with you. Uh, that he is probably one of the most fascinating world leaders, that, or I mean, I don't know if you can call him a world leader because, as you said, Serbia is such a small country. But I think, um, you know, he he is um, absolutely fascinating. His not just his um, kind of uh, political uh, transformation and whitewashing to a certain extent with the aid of the West. I think. Um, about his 90s past as Milosevic's Minister of Information, or some would say propaganda. But um, he uh, he's just, he's an expert at, at playing um, to the fears um, of um, major powers. And so what he's done um, is that he's, you know, his, he'll say, we, he'll appoint a lesbian prime minister, what, how many years after the, probably the worst anti-gay riots in Europe um, in 2010, the Gay Pride Parade 2010, four years later, there, he, um, Pride Parade started being held without a single incident. And then in 2017, uh, get a lesbian prime minister. Um, yeah. I mean, he's what he does for um, Washington and and for for the for Brussels is he is able to point to people like war war criminals like Vojislav uh, Šešel who are in politics uh, um, in Serbia and for, who um, unfortunately still um, and said he is able to say, look, um, if you don't stick with me, then you're going to. We're going to go back to the 90s. We're going to go back to this horrible period of time when, when you had, uh, look at all these right-wing parties that are like vying for, um, you know, uh, political support. Um, and then in Serbia, he can say, but I'm, I'm, you know, the conservative, um, you know, stable hand. Um, and I'm not like these liberals who want to sell you out to NATO. Um so I mean he's he's really um, he's actually the, the 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 lesbian prime minister you know it's it's a really fascinating thing to me because it's a um, it, you know if you if you if you think about it in like the the American context you know the way that we're talking about sorry to kind of just this is a bit of a tangent but like I've been just talking about this recently. Um, you know, it, we, we when you talk when Biden and, and the people around him say talk, talking about how they need a woman of, of color to be a, a, a VP, you know, th this seems like something that a lot of people support. Like this is great, but in Serbia, when it's done, when when you know this this very let's say patriarchal country, very traditional country that has history of homophobic violence very very recently. Um, puts a lesbian prime minister in power, it's exclusively pinkwashing, right? We see the cynicism of it. We see how 
tokenistic is and how fake it is. But Mm. we're not able to kind of like, we're not able to see it the same way in America. And I have a friend who was giving an interview um, to, uh, I think, a journalist from Germany uh, after one of the pride parades in the last year or two. And um, he kind of exploded at her. She said she she asked, uh, what has the lesbian prime minister done for the LGBT community in in Serbia? And he, he said something like, uh, well, what did Barack Obama do for blacks in America? <laughs> that's a good. That's a good response. Yeah. 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 <clears throat> Excuse me for that. It was a little bit all over the place, but I mean, there's so much to say about about Vucic. Um, I mean, yes. yeah. Sorry, just 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 to interject there. I, mean, I guess in terms of the um, the election, what's the what what's the basis of of Vucic's appeal in in your view? You know, he he's got quite a broad base of support right but could you describe for us what you might take to be a quote-unquote um typical supporter of his sure um <coughs> excuse me um the um he they won the election when they believe uh, i think it was 62 percent of the vote and that's a pretty significant victory uh his party um his the voters uh for for Vucic tend to be older um, they tend to be pensioners. Um, they tend to receive their information from um, newspapers and television, and not the internet. Um, so, um, and so, uh, I would say younger people um, make up more of the kind of more of his critics. But um, what's important about the way that um, power is distributed here. Or um, is this is a that a tremendous number of people in this country are employed directly or indirectly by the party? It's deeply like the, the party has its tentacles and and uh, um, in the private sector and in the, in the public sector. Um, mm. So this is a many people are reliant on paychecks. On their their paychecks are, are relying on kind of um, servility to the party, and you have to understand, you know, um, and this is something that you know I've, I've come to realize with time. You know, it, it's it's the, the the kind of social pressure that puts on people. Um, it's not just your job that's on the line. Imagine if you have a friend whose job is you know, or or a family member, you know parent or something whose job is connected some way to their um to the party you know whether it's in journalism or in um in the, in the public sector somewhere um then you're you know that's a lot of pressure like to not go against yeah. uh, to not vote against their interests if, if you care about them and it's understandable why people wouldn't I mean to me to a certain extent why people would at least keep their head down um, and if if not, just outright vote for for Vucic, and also because the opposition is in, in tatters and is, does not offer a particularly appealing alternative. Mm. So the the opposition um, boycotted the the election, right? So could could you maybe tell us a little bit about that? What happened, and did the did the boycotters um, gain anything politically from this? Um, so yeah, there was a um, the Opposition in Serbia is, is complicated, but there is um, an alliance of opposition parties that are very ideologically diverse. 
um, that boycotted the elections. They organized a boycott. And they've also been boycotting parliament um, since uh, late 2018, early 2019. And they had been... the group that had been organizing these mass protests. You might have heard about those protests. They were going on last mm-hmm. year. Um, but uh, the, so the, they were pulled, this, this alliance for Serbia that was, they were pulling it about, I think just under 10% before they, the boycott. Um, right. they, they opted yeah, not to participate. Uh, there were a lot of criticisms of that strategically because um, the elections that happened over the weekend were both for local and local elections and parliamentary elections. And so, for example, I have some friends who voted in the local elections, but boycotted the parliamentary elections. Um, but they, uh, the from what I know, is that, um, what they did gain uh, through that boycott is some kind of credibility for the 2024. Um, you know, they might be able to right. build something the interim um but certainly i mean um out of this election this is of all the elections i've i've been here for since 2000 i've seen um elections here since 2012 uh, um and have kind of been here on and off for for different elections and this is by far the most dramatic when it comes to um you know the dominance of um like one political group you have no opposition in parliament there's no opposition. So um, the ruling party, like I said, received 62%. The Socialist Party of Serbia, who, they, who was in, uh, and then this is a little bit too granular, maybe for the audience, but just, just, just to kind of illustrate, there are only three parties in parliament, and they're all, uh, they were all previously together in coalition. So there are, there's, there are no opposition, opposition parties at yeah, all. Yeah, so Lily, I mean, I wanted to ask about this because, I mean, just not knowing very much about Serbia, but, you know, reading about the election that they uh, reduced the threshold for entry for, for parties from 5% to 3%. And so that let me in more parties. But that seems uh, to indicate that there's a bunch of very, very small parties. I mean, small, you know, in terms of their actual political support so that there's no unified opposition. Um so, I mean, I wanted to maybe hear your comment on that, but also to know a little bit more, I guess, sociologically, um, where the lines of division are between uh, Vucic's group and the opposition. Uh, and, and obviously, we know that uh, turnout was uh, was low, probably under 50% because of the boycott. But I saw that, you know, in Belgrade, it was like 35% or something. So, I mean, is there a sort of urban-rural divide that's going on there? I mean, why was turnout much lower in, in Belgrade? Is that a a particular stronghold of the opposition or how does that work out? That's absolutely, you're absolutely right. There is an urban or rural divide. And I think that it's a kind of under-examined, you know, people talk about all other kinds of divisions in the region, you know, like ethnic divisions, generational, um, but they don't talk about this urban rural divide, which exists in all the, um, all countries of former Yugoslavia and certainly exists in Serbia. Um, you even have like specific neighborhoods in Belgrade that are, you know, very, uh, that tend to like be completely different than, than vote very against, uh, Vucic mm. and for kind of more like, say like socially liberal, um, pro EU, uh, parties. Um, so yeah, the, and you, you know, it, it, it's very different, but the, the, the main takeaway from this election, it's just there's I don't I don't think another there isn't a parliament like this in Europe anywhere else where you don't have an opposition. You, I mean, you have 
the only so-called opposition you have are minority parties because they have they don't have the same threshold three percent threshold to get into parliament that um constitutionally they are um because they're minority parties they're permitted to to enter um i think they're like 15 seats that are allocated for minorities but even the minority parties including the albanian minority parties were in coalition with uh the serbian progressive party with the Vucic's party at, right. before there's literally no opposition in parliament. I mean, that that's, I think, brings to mind, you know, especially I think for someone who doesn't know, uh, you know, Serbia or know the region necessarily very well, but, you know, you would think of someone like Viktor Orban in, in Hungary in terms of his uh, his domination and, and Fidesz's domination of uh, Hungarian politics. So, I mean, maybe that leads me on to, to ask for a bit of a comparison. I mean, for those who don't know Vucic, we've had a little bit about what he's like, but how does he compare politically um, to other sort of populist you know, strong men, um, you know, whether it be Viktor Orban or Putin or uh, Djukanovic in Montenegro, some of these sorts of characters, how does he compare? Yeah, that's an interesting question. Um, Especially, sorry, just attack on, just attack on something. I think also precisely because um, as you and Phil were discussing earlier, Vucic seems to be, you know, fated as a bit of a, you know, kind of technocrat centrist type, uh, whereas those other ones are very much not. So what distinguishes him? Mm-hmm. Um, well, first of all, I would I think that it, it's important to say that despite all of the attention that Hungary gets, um, this they have opposition in Parliament. There are opposition parties in Parliament in Hungary. Uh, the in, in, in also in Montenegro, even though it's um, uh, quite uh, the situation there is pretty miserable. Uh, I think that Vucic. Mm, how does he compare to these other uh, other types? Um, what's unique about uh, about Serbia? And I was just talking about this. Or I was talking about this with Branko Milanovic, the economist, when he was here last. Um, is there's the party has no ideology. Vucic has no ideology. Uh, we, he brands himself as this kind of like technocratic centrist, like you said, or center right, let's say. But in reality, he can he kind of has no. Um, um, there's no defining like um, he 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 shapeshifts. He's he's still a chameleon. I mean, we we talked about his kind of evolution politically from being Milosevic's or being yeah, being a, a minister of propaganda in a radical in his youth, but he also shapeshifts depending on who he is with um, today. So there is no. That's one of the strange kind of things about living in Serbia. Is you're living in a very uh, what is, I think at this point we know, um, uh, pretty like uh, an authoritarian, uh, regi- under an authoritarian mm-hmm. regime. I think that's not in question anymore. Um, but it has no ideological like d- there's no I- ideology attached to it. It's not you know Orban we can say um, you know is right wing and, and you yeah. know has a very specific sort of um, um, we, we, yeah, his ideology is fairly clear. Even maybe people can say that it's cynical and that it's he's using it to kind of um, protect his inner circle of cronies or whatever. Um, but I think that the 
difference between Vucic and, 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 and Putin and uh, Erdogan and maybe even Djokovic, because Djokovic in Montenegro, even though he's been in power for 30 years, you know, his entire kind of, um, say, um, political um, um, persona is being pro-West, like, pro pro NATO and being able to pivot at the exact right moment needs to to change to be so he's he's really to get out of jail free card like almost literally for him um, and that's why he's been allowed to rule for thirty years. That's always useful, uh, you know, to be to be friendly and and you know oriented to the West. Uh, that way, uh, you keep on the West's good side and you can get away with whatever you want. Yes, exactly. <laughs> yeah, it is. yeah, yes. <laughs> I wanted to talk a bit about um, EU expansion, how it works out in Serbia. So Serbia is the a candidate state for membership of the European Union. Um, some former Yugoslav states, as we already mentioned, are members of the European Union now, Slovenia and Croatia. All of the former Yugoslav countries want to become members of the European Union in a great kind of historical irony, given how much blood was spilt to erect borders between them. They want to be absorbed into a new kind of borderless union. Um, but I wanted to, I suppose, think about, about how... Um, this uh, how the politics of EU expansion works. What is how does the European Union function in Serbian politics? How do people approach it and think about it? Um, because it's a I think it's of interest to our listeners to understand the European Union from a different um, from a different perspective from the one which we normally talk about on this show. Yeah, that's great, um, and it's really fascinating to talk about this with people in the UK, um, where I was living at the beginning of this year, um, uh, because people, uh, like when I was speaking with Remainers, you know, they were talking about how fantastic uh, the EU project is, you know, and if you talk to people out here, um, you'll see a completely different kind of... Uh, um, You'll hear many, many more mixed things. Uh, on the one hand, um, uh, the EU, um, to its, to be fair, um, many people see their future in the EU, especially young people. And there is a tremendous amount of immigration from all uh, countries of former Yugoslavia to um, to uh, say Western Europe and EU countries, and I think yeah, a lot of people, and especially a lot of young people, see their future there, and that's why visa liberalization um, is kind of the, the issue for for countries like well, specifically for Kosovo um, right now. Serbs can travel to the, the EU, um, but the um, the the general, uh, I mean, I'm speaking that obviously there are many different kinds of, uh, there are many views that I want to speak on behalf of the entire nation of Serbia, but um, um, there is a little bit of, there, there's lingering resentment towards uh, EU countries because they are viewed uh, part of the alliance that bombed them in 1999. Uh, but uh, but so yeah so the EU is kind of viewed as a is is 
you know, the NATO and e, the EU are sort of sort of lumped together in the minds of a lot of people here because there are NATO are a lot of countries in, uh, in common, uh, and so there is still some lingering resentment. Um, the EU is obviously more popular than NATO. Like people, more people in Serbia would want to join the EU than join NATO. NATO membership is very unpopular. Um, but uh, I, I think, um, and, and I don't know if you've if seen this, but the EU is involved in this very big kind of PR push where um, they are trying to. There's there's a lot of um, there are misconceptions in Serbia. If you ask, there are polls that have been done where Serbs believe that the bulk of, say, aid in the country comes from China or comes from Russia. And in, and the EU tries to kind of counter, like kind of does these uh, uh, spend a lot of money on on trying to kind of educate the population and say, no, actually we spend more money on on uh, this region or in on, in on specifically in Serbia than um, than China or Russia. It's just your perception of uh, who is giving the money is wrong. Um, but this kind of cold and clinical. Um, say kind of approach doesn't really seem to be working very well you know when people when um uh, i was talking to a friend who'd actually been working on a report for um for the eu and he was saying that uh, that this the serbs weren't very moved by seeing these numbers like that this is how much money the eu is giving you because um in their mind they were recalculating and they were thinking like well how much money or how how, how badly was our infrastructure damaged how many, you know, during the NATO bombing, like how much do these countries kind of owe us really? Like if you, so, uh, but, and I get, I get, it's a mixed, it's a mixed thing. I think that's, uh, there's still a, the, the kind of support for European uh, integration or expan um, expansion. I'm glad to use the word expansion because we know it's a bit of an imperial project. Um, uh, that it's, um, it's kind of holding steady like it hasn't really gone down or gone up too much for since like uh, the late aughts for like the last 10 years or so it's been pretty much constant at around 50 percent supporting eu integration maybe a little bit more a little bit less depends on the year i think it went down a bit after brexit um but yeah so that's that's kind of the the view here so one of the things that you've um, touched on quite consistently in your writing is the influence of Western NGOs and their involvement in the politics of the region. Um, can you tell us a little bit more about that? Oh, um, yeah. Well, this is obviously a sector um, that is uh, demonised um, in the same way that you would see this sector demonised in, in, say, like Hungary. Um, because they are often backed by, you know, um, you know, say foreign money. Um, I do think that uh, this kind of NGOification of um, of society has had some kind of uh, negative consequences. Uh, uh, not negative consequences. That's the wrong way to put it. I think what I meant to say is that. Um, that they have some suspicion to themselves for reasons that aren't entirely 
unwarranted. Like um, they, they're demonized, but they're it's not entirely. I, I understand why um, they're seen as uh, um, attempts to kind of undermine other forms of, say, solidarity and tradition in in the country. So whether it's the family or or socialist kind of bonds existed in Yugoslavia. Um, they're there to exact kind of like neoliberal policies and like individualist kind of right. Um, uh, like rights-based uh, claims uh, on the population. And they're also kind of there to, you know, to, to uh, as a way for say Western powers, especially the United States, to kind of identify political collaborators. So, for example, the right. Prime Minister of Serbia, um, lesbian Prime Minister, she uh, was working for USAID pri- prior to being Prime Minister. And she was a very, the US Embassy was very um, much a proponent of her premiership here. Mm. So, um, I don't yeah. know if you're able to, to name any names of these. Uh, is, is it mainly American larger NGOs? Um, you know, what, what, what are the sort of character of these, of these organizations to give us, a, I guess, an, an example or a bit of, bit of sort of color here? Um, uh, names. Um, I mean, I think that uh, a lot of, you know, they, they're usually, um, um, dealing with minority rights, which is uh, the ones that I can think of up, up the top of my head. Um, all like LGBT rights, uh, Roma rights. And of course, like that's, they do a lot of them do fantastic work and like really important work for groups that are marginalized. But um, the problem is what ends up happening is that they end up in, uh, like employing like, like say local urban educated uh, young people for, right. for the duration of a project. And then those 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 young people uh, learn how to write projects, learn how to get grants. But then after that, you know, say the project ends after a year, where do they go? And those, it also um, means the state is not taking care of those rights. So, for example, mm. like, you know, ideally, like, if you care about the rights of Roma children, or uh, that would be something that the that Serbian state would be taking care of. Uh, taking so care instead of, of organizing. Be. Yeah. No, so, I think I think that's a, a fairly common story to a certain extent instead of organizing politically it promotes um you know kind of grant and civil society based um uh solutions through kind of trying to always get another project off the ground and again and again yes it's very precarious you know and, and i'm not sure how transferable are for young people who learn who like kind of grown up you know um there's a whole generation here now i think like millennials um, or people are kind of like cusp, gener- um, Gen X, millennial cusp, uh, um, people, they kind of grew up on grants, you know? And, and, um, so yeah. And, and, um, it's, it's unfortunate. And also it, um, I mean, it's great for, they do, again, I don't want to, um, diminish the good work that a lot of them do. And, um, um, certainly they, yeah, yeah, but there are, uh, valid criticisms of them as well and and i think another criticism that that is is valid is that they do not seem particularly interested in the rest of the country it seems to be like kind of concentrated in urban areas uh among like fairly um 
say, um, upper middle class youth um, uh, who are, um, you know, happy to be earning maybe three to four times what the average person here would earn. Um, and um, there's not a lot of uh, there's not a lot of presence uh, outside of the capitals or maybe a few other large mm. cities. And it, it breeds resentment, elite resentment. Yeah. That actually feeds back into uh, uh, why someone like Vujic is so popular. Um, mm. So, yeah, so these, I mean, these are obviously scapegoats in media, these NGOs, Western NGOs. And that's um, unfortunate and sad. And of course, they have many friends that work in that sector. But at the same time, they're, um, they're not always. Uh, like the, the, there is a, a, kind of a, a kind of a cloud of elitism around them, you know, um, that uh, is exploited yeah. again by the by the pro-government media. You can see how the two sides of that story fit together. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I wanted to exactly. um, get your view on it. Kind of builds on this issue of the role of the middle class, the intelligentsia, um, the educated. Um, elites, uh, because I wanted to get your perspective on um, something which came to me from a article by Sergeant Garcevich. He wrote for his blog, The Nutshell Times, yeah. about the changing character of the Balkan intelligentsia. And he says that we see some of the legacy of the old Yugoslavia in some of the leading lights of the Balkan intelligentsia today. And he mentions Branko Milanovic, um, the leading economist and specialist on global inequality, who you mentioned just now. But he also mentions um, Marina Abramovic, the famous conceptual artist who's an American now. And of course, um, the big the big uh, Zed himself, Slavoj Žižek. And um <laughs> Garcevich yeah. says that, you know, such figures could only emerge in a particular circumstances of a country such as Yugoslavia that was purged between East and West in the Cold War and was willing to assert its political and moral independence of the great powers. And he contrasts this with the kind of deference and cringe which is exhibited by Balkan intellectuals and leaders to Western liberalism today. So I was wondering off the, if you could off kind of... Uh, if you could riff off that maybe to tell us a little bit about the intellectual scene in Belgrade and the wider Balkan region. Ooh. Yeah, that's a good question. Um, mm. I thought that surgeon's article was great. Um, uh, I, um, I find the intellectual scene today a bit lacking. Um, I, I feel that in Serbia, um, at least um, I, I'm probably Others would, would object to, to that, but um, I think that, um, as I said before, many of the most uh, talented young young people are are, are looking to leave, um, and that's been a trend that's been kind of um, um, that you've seen um, increasing with every year. Um, we're very lucky to have people like Sergeant <laughs> in Belgrade, I think. Um, uh, I think that, uh, I don't know, I, all I can say is I, I have, you know, personal anecdotes, which are that, um, the, the smartest and kind of talented, most talented kind of artists, intellectuals that I've gotten to know since I came here, um, let's see, eight, nine years ago, um, are mostly gone, um, are living in Milan or London, 
um, Berlin and um, New York. And, and and indeed, I mean, that's true of the figures I mentioned as well. Milanovic, Abramovic and Zizek are all, you know, they're all um, expats. Yeah, they're all abroad. Yes. Yeah. Um, I think that um, one uh, un- one development is that un- which is very fascinating, and I don't think many people discuss it. Uh, is that the ruling party of Serbia, which is obviously not a particularly like not not a party you would imagine is stacked with like uh, intellectuals or artists or anything, has been actually very skilled at co-opting artists and. Um, say um, um, playwrights, and um, um, I mean it was it was after all the prime minister of Serbia, the the Anna Brnovich, who brought Marina Abramovic here for the first time in, in in a very long time. She had a show last year. Um, they have um, they've managed to kind of co-opt public intellectuals. By giving theater space or like our uh, gallery space, um, and neutralize them that way. Hmm. No, that's that's interesting. I mean, so, something that kind of maybe follows on from this is uh, is a question. I mean, is there nostalgia for the old Yugoslavia, sort of Yugo nostalgia, in the same way that you might have in Germany, a sort of ostalgia? Both amongst uh, you know Serbians, but also maybe even amongst oh, you know, yeah. the Westerners who live in the region yes. who kind of look Very back nostalgically. That yeah, exists. yeah. I mean, there's a tremendous amount of nostalgia. I think that um, if you, there was a map published recently about like you know which countries in former Yugoslavia have you know poll the highest or the most nostalgia. I think Serbia is at the top. Serbia and Bosnia are always kind of neck mm. and neck for that. Um, Serbia is a I think if you ask most, not all people, but if you ask most people which country they prefer to live in, they would say Yugoslavia. Um, There is a bit of a pushback now from, I would say, the Zoomers who kind of make fun of the what they call yugo boomers who kind of (laughs) this this kind of dreamy idea about like, the red passport where you could travel to Trieste and you could travel all over the world and you could, uh, let's say that you could, um, you made 2,000 euros a month and, and uh, Tito was uh, having sex with Sophia Loren and like everything was very cool. It's like, and, okay, you go uh, boomer. A little bit of like now making people make fun of it a little bit now, but um, but still that, uh, but certainly that Yugo nostalgia exists. And I think the, the ruling party uh, and Vucic have kind of why have used that um, uh, to to kind of great benefit domestically, like to kind of um, for their um, their average voter, which I mentioned before, are kind of pensioners who are you know the Yugo boomers, let's say, um, and they they do these like big you know parades that Tito hadn't done since the like not Tito. This is after Tito's death. That hadn't been held in, uh, in Belgrade since 1984. These huge parades of tanks and uh, uh, various like armored vehicles that are held like every year now that never happened um, um, until this the ruling party came to power. I think part of it is kind of uh, for the domestic audience showing you know now again we're all, we're on the world map. Yeah, that's that's interesting. I mean, I can <laughs> I can see that play how how that would play out. Um, Phil, mm-hmm. 
Yeah, I wanted to pick up the to finish by picking up on the most recent piece of news to emerge from the region. Um, so that mo- it, a deal, it appeared like a deal was on the table or it, well, not on the table, but at least being constructed by the Trump administration. It was trying to broker a deal between Serbia and Kosovo. Kosovo um, having declared independence from Serbia in 2008, ethnic Albanian majority, um, but Serbia still holds Kosovo to be a, um, a, a renegade province. So it seemed like we were on the brink of the Trump administration being able to um, broker a deal that would be a foreign policy victory in an election year for a president who's, um, you know, kind of trying to, has been, uh, I suppose, cultivating a particular um foreign policy in distinction to previous presidents, previous administrations. And just as this, just as um, the Serbian president Vucic was about to meet with his um, Kosovo counterparts, uh, the Kosovo leaders have been invited for war crimes, um, stemming from the guerrilla war that they led in the 1990s. So um, how do you read this um, remarkable, this remarkable kind of coincidence of events? This is what's developing. Um, um, there are many interpretations of what's going on, but my uh, my read on it is that um, um, well, just just to, just to back up a little bit, uh, the this case against uh, Hashim Tachi, the current president of uh, Kosovo, who is uh, an who was the leader of the. KLA, the guerrilla fighters you mentioned, uh, fighting against Ser- Serbian forces in 98, 99. Um, he, um, this, uh, this, apparently this case was submitted to the Kosovo Special Chambers in The Hague uh, in April. So the timing of this, um, uh, of the publication of the indictment, which was just yesterday, uh, is very interesting and, and and there's there's no way that it doesn't have something to do with this planned um summit in washington organized by um the bulk and peace envoy richard grinnell um uh the um speculations are that uh, the uh, there is a tremendous amount of tension between washington and certain european states right now and the eu in general but um, there is a um, uh, Macron uh, just last week announced that he wanted to hold his own, or he announced that he was scheduling his own summit, uh, Kosovo Serbia summit for July seventeenth in Paris. Uh, so uh, there is, and, and the EU had criticized strongly uh, um, uh, Grinnell and the Trump administration's um, kind of maneuvers. Uh, to take a kind of more muscular approach and, and, and take a leadership approach in um, uh, with negotiations between Serbia and Kosovo. Um, so uh, the thinking goes that um, that this indictment was publicized just in advance of the uh, this Saturday's planned meeting um, to basically make. To, to undermine them to and and that's been successful now they're cancelled um and so the question so what this kind of reveals is this growing chasm between washington and brussels but also individual 
the EU member states and a desire for ownership over um, who gets to solve the Kosovo issue. And I guess it plays into uh, geopolitical rivalry in an unexpected way. It's not just the West v. China and Russia, but also internal divisions within the West themselves, like you say, between who gets to solve the Kosovo issue, who gets to claim the credit for it, is itself an right. object of contention. Interesting stuff. Um, well, thank you so much for joining us, Ali. That's been fabulous. And I think will be really appreciated by our listeners getting insights from Belgrade and from uh, the Western Balkans itself on what's happening there. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you for having me. Yeah, thank you. Oh, and it is Western Balkans then, Phil, is it? So now you're now you're on board with Western <laughs> Balkans. Okay. From the Balkans. From the Balkans. <laughs> This river here is the official geographical limit between Balkan and Middle Europa. So beware, on the other side, horror oriental despotism, women get beaten, get raped and like it. On this side, Europe civilization, women get beaten and raped but don't like it. So Balkan, Middle Europa, don't forget it. <laughs>